I think it's it's that that public nature of the reward system too, you know. Um, so if if you post something that is going to be likable and people comment on it, you get that instant gratification. You know, you get that dopamine, you know, rush, and and it's hard not to get hooked on on the attention you get. It's it's a it's a constant attention economy here. Like it's asynchronous, but it also can be synchronous. And people all around the world in all of these different time zones could be reacting to you at all times. So you almost never have a non-audience. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Inner Wealth, the Forbes Ignite podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Kakal, CEO of Forbes Ignite. And every week I'll be sharing with you my conversations with unique, creative, and innovative people across all different industries. These are people who are intellectually curious explorers who are also redefining what it means to be successful today. From personal to professional, we cover it all to understand what drives our guests, to blaze their own trails and create nimble solutions within the industries that touch each of our lives. Our guest today is Linda Chamaraman, a senior research scientist at the Wellesley Centers for Women. She also serves as the project director of its youth, media, and well-being research lab, where she directs the ongoing media and identity study, an international survey of over 5,000 participants since 2011 in over 20 countries concerning media use, social identities, digital citizenship, and civic engagement. I admire Linda as a pioneer in this field before social media ever became mainstream. And it's something that our society begs to learn more about as our world becomes more digitized and our youth becomes more exposed at an earlier age. I also deeply admire her commitment to championing young female minorities in the STEM field and how to make science more accessible and a reality to them as a career path. I know you're gonna love what she has to say. Here's our chat. Hi, Linda, thanks so much for being here. Hi, Nicole. Thanks so much for joining me because I know that we've been, you know, during our pre-call, I mentioned that the very first time that I heard you speak was at the American Museum of Natural History. And that this was pre-COVID. So this was a while ago. And I heard you speak around um, the research that you were doing and all the work that you're doing. And I just knew that I had to get to know you better. And so I'm really excited that we finally have a chance to sit down and talk about it. Oh, I'm so lucky that you were in the audience because you never know when you go to these events, you know, who is going to be in the audience and who you're going to get connected to. So I'm really grateful that you reached out. No, exactly. Exactly. And like I said, that seems like ages ago, but really it was just last year. I think it's officially about one year since that actual event. So definitely a lot has happened between now and then. And um, since then, you are actually a speaker on our cognitive diversity event, which I'm super eternally grateful for what you contributed and what you did. And I guess I would love to start this off by understanding what fascinates you the most with cognitive diversity and all about it. Well, I think um, in general, I have this obsession with diversity and all that it means um, to different people. And um, there is a a trend out there about trying to understand how different people think, how they tick, how they react or not react in social situations, and what are some of the things that are driving that. Um, A lot of times people wanna narrow it down to a score or a number, an IQ, or some kind of tangible sort of measure, but, in reality, it's probably such a complex combination of um, your experiences, what you were born with, how you were raised, um, what kind of educational level you had, um, what kind of people you've associated with over time, and what you've been rewarded 
in the past four, what kind of things you've done, what kind of th um, what kind of accomplishments that are are considered something that people should celebrate. And so I think cognitive diversity it could be used in a way that could really elevate the voices and experiences of many different sectors of the population in so many different situations, you know, whether it's in a decision-making context of a, of a workspace, or it could be in the artistic creations of a, a theater, you know, company. Um, it could be in, um, in, in a math class, you know, in middle school, to embrace the different ways that people um, learn and understand, you know, each other. Um, I think that's, that's something that deserves to be looked at further, you know, because there's so many different disciplines that that want to say that they have, you know, sort of the, the handle on it. But when you bring them all together, um, maybe we can even find something even more extraordinary. Right. Exactly. And I'm echoing your sentiment that there it's such a broad field and there's so much that we can learn from it. And specifically talking about the field that you specialize in. And so what led me to your talk at the American Museum of Natural History was your research around adolescent upbringing and the effects of social media and how we grow and how we how we learn. And so I would love to know a little bit more about that and what led you to that to those studies. Yes. Well, I have to say that I, I'm going to say that word again, I'm obsessed <laughs> with, with developmental understandings of human, you know, life, like uh, adolescence is, is one of my favorite time periods, because it's at the intersection of, you know, growing out of, of being a child, and um, getting, getting exposed to, to new technologies, new social environments, new, new school contexts, you're kind of um, aging out of like your parents being the number one influencers, and now you got the peer influence, and you know you really care about peer acceptance at that point. And and so I I thought you know social media is is the place where it's all happening, you know um, whether it's in the view of the family or not. Um, it's it could be very public, it could be very private. It's it's a wonderful. Uh, place to kind of study natural interactions kind of in the wild you know what are they doing online and, and um you know uh, what are they how are they spending their their leisure time and, and there's so many different ways that you know that i think society has all these um, perceptions about what is healthy social media use what's not healthy some people are very extreme about technology is all you know, artificial and bad, and, and other ones, you know, think that it can, you know, it, it's it's the wave of the future, and this is it's up to you to to um, use it um, to harness for the good, and and so and so, I I'm sort of in that area where where I'm trying to figure out how how can we get adolescents to also inform us in how how they should be using it in, in ways that you know uplift their lives instead of um, making them feel bad about themselves, for instance. Right. No, exactly. So I would love to get your thoughts on this. There's something I've been thinking about a lot, and I could be completely off base, completely off with this, but I think you're the most qualified person to tell me if, if I'm on the right track or not. Um, so we talk about this, the fascination with, well, specifically, I'm very fascinated with the Gen Z generation. I think one would argue that Gen Zers are way more vocal about their values and voicing their opinions, which is, which is great, which is awesome. And I'm wondering if that has anything to do with the fact that 
they've spent their entire lives, basically their parents were sharing their baby pictures and their upbringing all on social media. And so their lives were put out there into the world. And also they're getting all of this information from other sources in the world that are not just their parents, because I'm making myself sound old with our generation or with our parents. It was just traditional. The information dissemination was top down from your parents to you. But now with the invention of smartphones and having social media at your fingertips, that presents so much more information a lot faster and a lot more frequently and just a sheer higher volume than previous generations. So that Gen Zers actually formulate their opinions a lot earlier in life and a lot more comfortably. Am I completely out there with this? No, not at all. I can see where where you're heading with that, you know, especially with this whole this whole, you know, phenomenon of like influencers and how they could see that you can actually make a living telling people what you think and and acting in crazy ways and um and you know it's monetized. You know your your opinions matter. Uh, the brands, you know, um, you can be promoting brands and you can be kind of indirectly kind of influencing your peers through whatever you post. You know, <laughs> right? No, exactly. So tell me a little bit more about the work that you're doing, because I know that you run these workshops where you're delving a little bit more into um, just the effects of not just only social media, but technology in general in adolescence. Yeah. So, you know, we've been doing these these studies um, in the middle schools, you know, in the greater Boston area about social media and what people are doing on smartphones and YouTube and games. And um, and we've been understanding a lot of these um, in associations with their mental health and physical health. But then in the end, when we get the research and we analyze it, the parents and the, the counselors and the teachers are saying, so what are you going to do for us right now? We need your help right now. Um, and, um, and so we decided we're, we're just going to start creating these workshops for middle schoolers. So it's not at the burden of parents who might not have time and the schools are already really packed with their schedule. We were going to be kind of like an outside, you know, collaborator, community-based, you know, partner in bringing in content. Um, and so we, we started in a pre-COVID situation where we we're in person and we're there pretty much for four days, for four hours each day, getting to know how young people, you know, these middle schoolers are using social media in unexpected ways. And we invited them to sort of let's, let's co-create situations and scenarios and even design apps you know, potentially that could help them regulate their own use. So it's not about an adult telling you this is what's best for you, you know, because in, in this age, I mean, I mean, the average now the US average of getting your first smartphone is age 10. I mean, that's in elementary school. And if if parents are just kind of like, okay, here's your phone, now I can get in contact with you. But they're using their phone for many other <laughs> many other reasons. And um if there is a way for us to empower them with their own sort of um, self-awareness and realizing that there's so many different choices that they could make that can really improve their experience. Like for instance, um, having a, a more positive network of people that will actually, you know, come come and help you out when you are asking for, for help. A lot of people don't realize that you, you have the chance to curate your own network <laughs> and it, in that age, it's it's considered rude to to reject somebody's friend request, 
and and we, we want people to know that it's okay to hide people, turn people off, mute people a little bit um, to help your well-being. And um, I think at that age, people are so wanting to be popular and they want to you know be accepted. They don't want to be that oddball that and and you know that the fear of missing out comes out. You know that that sort of feeling like everybody else is having so much more fun and has has a better life than than I do. And and so this is to me that that's a sweet spot is in like sixth, fifth grade, sixth grade, maybe even seventh grade to kind of um, get everybody to, to sort of have a, a space to kind of talk with their peers about what's going on, what are you doing? What, what, what happens this, when, when this happens, what do you do? And maybe you can give me advice. So that's that's what we're kind of trying to do with these workshops. Um, they're now virtual because of the COVID <laughs> pandemic and um, and it's been, it's been so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> No, I'm really, I'm so glad to hear about it because there is, like I said, I, I think about these things a lot and I think about um, just the use of smartphones and technology at such a young age. And that's, that's incredible that the average first use of a smartphone is when they're 10 years old or when they get their first smartphone. That's to me, that's crazy. Um, I don't remember getting um, one of those Motorola like <laughs> cell phones that looked, that looked like a brick. I was like almost in high school already. Um, wow, my how times have changed, Linda. Change absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but no, um, that that makes a ton of sense to me. And so I'm wondering here. So what do you see in terms of the, the future of the the workshops that you're doing? Um, where are you planning to take this, and what are you hoping to find? Yeah, yeah. I mean. We're trying to go at it at a couple of different angles. Okay, so I do have a collaborator named Catherine Delcourt, a computer scientist who um, studies human-computer interaction. And along with her, we are trying to figure out a way to develop um, STEM identities, like stronger STEM identities in people, um, in young people, especially girls and minority girls, you know, of color who might not imagine themselves as people who can be computer scientists in the future or who can be scientists in general. And so we're using these workshops to try to create this environment to empower them with the tools that they could use to see themselves as in this kind of field, you know, like, like we, we had all these guest speakers, you know, like, for instance, Jitanjali Rao, we had her on at our workshop, and she's a 14 year old um, Forbes 30 under 30, who designed a, a an app that combats um, cyberbullying. And so she came and, and empowered them with this, this idea that, oh my gosh, just because she's 14 doesn't mean that she has to wait until she's an adult to, to make an impact on society. And so so that's one angle. The other angle that we want to take on this workshop is to work on adolescent well-being and like mental health. And so we we kind of lure them into thinking, okay, this is about technology and your and, and your 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 smartphone and 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 um, you know amount of time you're spending. But we also really care about your well-being and and how you could um, recognize signs in yourself that you're not doing so well that you might need help and that it's normal and that everybody else is going through some of the same things with this, you know, this new technology driven world that we're, we're on now because of the, of the pandemic. Um, and that I, a lot of the, the students after the workshop m- mentioned how they had been in social isolation and it was nice to, to kind of meet new people, not under the guise of regular school. So we're hoping to, to do this every, every summer. We're al- also trying to expand it into like an after school 
sort of framework so we can have these one-time events so it's not just like you, you have time to do a whole week you know with us it's like a, like a boot camp kind of thing but there's also opportunities where we're going to do like these like one-time workshops about a particular topic maybe we're going to talk about privacy controls for one one topic and another topic will be about you know um, body image and curating your photos you know and so it might attract different people for different reasons so so yeah that's that's our goal um we we, we provide all these free of charge to families because we don't want it to be a socioeconomic divide issue and um and we always are trying to look for more sponsors to help us you know run these workshops with with youth from all over the country so that's incredible and let me just be one to say thank you for doing this, especially within that demographic of uh, females of color, especially around that age where you are the most impressionable and you're developing self-confidence in your own opinion about yourself. And these are some really critical years and your focus on self-confidence, well-being and mental health. And these are things that people don't obviously don't talk to you about during that age. So thank you for doing that. And you really thought through everything, how you don't want there to be a socioeconomical divide. And so you're providing this free of charge. So that's amazing. A lot of people don't, don't believe it too. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. no, of course. And that leads me to my question about yourself and your own journey and how, what led you to become the amazing scientist that you are. And I would love to hear about your story and what led you to the specialty that you're so that you're focused on right now and how you're helping younger girls. Well, um, I'd have to say I, I've been blessed with so many um, amazing mentors who who wanted me to both be just like them and also wanted me to be not like them <laughs> to be me. You know, and so that was really, really helpful. Like, like for instance, one of one of the stories um, about how I ended up in social media research. You know, I used to be really um, before that. I was in mainstream media research. You know, like you know, media effects and how to st negative stereotypes about girls and and people of color on, in the media. You know, impact you know their well being. And this is before Facebook was even had it even launched. Um, and there was things like MySpace and other kinds of you know apps out there. And, um, and I remember my mentors saying, you know, I, I was saying, you know, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move into this area of social media. I, mean, I think this is, a, this is a really fruitful arena. And they, they would look at me like, that's not a thing. That's just a fluke. It's, it's just not going to take off. You know, you should go with the tried and true. You know, you should go with the, you know, with the traditional research, which has a lot of backing and a lot of history. And I remember thinking, I want to go where people are too afraid to go. And, um, and maybe it'll be a fluke, but I, I, I felt like this was going to be a whole new way of, of interacting with the world, you know, and, and I think, I think a lot of places and institutions like funders, for instance, weren't quite ready to study it either, that people were very scared of studying, you know, social media at that point. And a lot of, a lot of the, the, the research on internet at that point had been about, you know, you know, stranger danger and, you know, people in these icky chat rooms, you know, where you're meeting up with people, you know, and, and people had this, this sort of um, stigmatized idea of, you know, privacy invasions. And, and I think it took a while for, for me to even get this, this funding, this NIH funding um, for this study, because people were afraid that, you know, what are the researchers going to do with your, with your data, you know, and also that there was a lot of denial about this age group 
of middle school being important to study? Because most most set, um, most research on social media is in college, college students. Oh, okay. And so most of the stuff that you've been hearing about, like Facebook depression, if that's a thing or not, it's done on college students, and it's a whole different time period in your life. And so, I mean, I, I feel like my journey has been about people allowing me to kind of take a risk. And for me to decide that this risk was worth taking and that if I get rejected here and there, um, I know one of my mentors said that 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 meant that I was going on the right track. I mean, it means that you're doing something that you didn't think you could, you know, you could do and that you pushed yourself and you're not in this complacent place where everybody's just going to say, yes, that's brilliant, Mm -hmm. you know, because you don't want to be in that place. You know, that's a boring place to me. Like, you know, you want to go to that place where, oh my gosh, that is, you know, I never thought of that before. And they look at you like, <laughs> seriously, this is what you want to do? You know, I, I like that story um, of Dr. Seuss and how he he got rejected like a thousand times before a publisher decided, I'm sure, I'm imagining in my head, okay, you are bizarre, but I'm going to take a chance on you. And then aren't you, aren't you glad that person like, took a chance on this, you know, this author, you know, and so, and I think about that sometimes, and it's like, okay, um, another person doesn't get it, maybe the world isn't quite ready, but maybe there's just another way to packaging it, so that you can convince people in a different way, you know, (laughs) you know, so. Right, that's brilliant, and you know, you said what, you said something along the lines of what I was going to say around, if people are afraid of delving into a specific field, or they think it's a little too risky, that's how you know you're definitely on the right track. I'm sorry. I'm, that might not be the the perfect wording or <laughs> the perfect way to to portray that trajectory, but it's a way for you to know that that's how you know that area of study is fruitful is because there's not enough being done around it. And why would you want to go somewhere where there's already oversaturation of, I would say, like opinion and old information that needs a facelift, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really glad that you went in the, dire- in the direction that you went in because, I, I mean, you think about all the people that are interested in how social media affects your brain and how it affects your mental health and your well-being. What if no one studied that? What if everyone was just too scared and there is just sparse information about it? So you're developing the field. You're a pioneer in it. And so, I, again, I'm going to say another thank you for doing what you're doing. Oh, and, and I, I'm, I'm among a lot of people now that have caught on to this research. And I'm, I'm so glad that, that I'm, I'm not, I'm not faced with that, those stares of what is social, what is Facebook? <laughs> so I'm glad that I'm not alone anymore. And that it's, it's such a burgeoning, it's just a flourishing field. Still, a lot of people don't know a lot about um, how marginalized communities use it too. So that's another way or that's in the place where I'm trying to head to, you know, like, you know, how do racial ethnic minorities use it differently? How do girls, girls of color, there's even some sparse research on like homeless youth and how they use it and, you know, neurodiverse youth, you know, people with intellectual disabilities and how they use it differently. And so I'd like, I'd love to dive more into the different kinds of populations that um, could be using it in in sometimes risky but sometimes resilient ways that we can all learn from. Yeah. Uh, to that note, what has surprised you the most in the social media use and how people have used it in forms of resilience? Oh gosh, um, I think that there's so many different ways that we have seen um, 
differences among the people that really care about other people's opinions and that inform their self-worth, that, that sort of leads us down to that road of, okay, sometimes social media can be, it needs to have limits and somebody needs to be um, having um, conversations, more conversations with, with young people that might be processing it in a way that could be detrimental to their self-esteem and their self-confidence. And I think, I think there was a story once of, you know, this, this family that I interviewed, I, I interviewed the dad, the mom, and two sisters about their social media use in the house. And it was just amazing how within the same house, there were so many different readiness levels of starting to embrace social media. You know, like it wasn't necessarily the oldest sister that that they were allowed to have a phone in and social media. It was actually the younger sister in which they thought that she was she was able to withstand all the drama online, was able to deflect and it didn't it didn't it didn't um, hit her core. But the older sister, same parenting, you know, same household, wasn't was was more fragile and wasn't able to um, withstand any of the the potential mean comments and the the FOMO stuff, you know, like um, other people are having better lives and they look so much better than me and I have to, you know, um, and it was just, it was just amazing how a lot of times people, one of the things they ask me a lot um, in interviews is how much is too much time and what is the limit? What's the cutoff? What's the curfew? But really it's about every family having a plan that works for them and each child and each adult has their own trigger point and threshold in which it would be health, not healthy anymore. And it really depends. And, and we, there needs to be dialogue in, in order to find out where that threshold is. Um, and so and I'm sorry, I always said to, to tell people there isn't a magic number that I could tell you this is, you know, this is when it's too far because it's different for every, every person. Right. That is fascinating. You would have thought, you would think that it would be the younger sister or the youngest of the household that might be a little bit more sensitive to to a lot of the the external commentary and and the older sister would have more resilience and have more they would know how to navigate those waters but that's really fascinating to hear about and it just comes to show that if that's just one family think about entire ecosystems of how this happens how this interplays with people in the workplace for instance there's there's different types of like internal messaging systems and like social media within organizations as well, where it's like a more of a closed community, but it's the same concept. It's like a different type of family. <laughs> it, it also sort of helps us think of uh, reconceptualizing who's the expert and who's the novice. You don't, you, you can't really assume that the youngest least experienced actually has is not the expert in the family. You know, the, I don't know if you've heard of the digital natives kind of thing, you know, like, you know, Gen Z, yeah, they're digital natives because they, they grew up with that. And so a lot of times they're teaching their parents how to use technologies and the, the latest apps, you know, um, which wasn't seen in, in the, you know, in my generation. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. So I know. My daddy have an email, you know. <laughs> <laughs> email, that, that, that's something that came like, I don't know. I remember the Hotmail days and the. <laughs> AOL. AOL. <laughs> Wow, really yeah. dating myself here. But um, I <laughs> <laughs> so you're telling me that you started out in researching um, mainstream media and its effects on. Was it always on adolescent, the adolescent demographic, or did that 
was that more of a specialty that you honed in on in later years? Well, actually, my dissertation was about adolescents and how urban adolescents um, tried to rewrite their their stereotypes in the media by creating their own media, music and videos. Oh, cool. um, and, and what led me to that, um, that place was actually my love of film. And um, I, I was, um, I was directing the, the Women of Color Film Festival out in Berkeley, California. And, um, and in a way, it, it all kind of comes together because it was, a, that was my space to, to try to find a form for these underrepresented you know, filmmakers to have a place to broadcast their stories. And, and because of that connection at that film festival, I met um, the, this youth director, the youth program director that, you know, I eventually did my dissertation on and, um, and then the rest is history. So in a way I, I did what they, they say to do to hang out where you, where you, you feel a lot of passion for and, and belong. And then you, and then things come to you, you know, like the opportunities just kind of, you know, get in your lap in a way. <laughs> incredible. So that was out in California, out in Berkeley. Yes. Amazing. Yes. My, those, those were the days. Um, <laughs> yes. Very different than where I am now in, in Boston. That's another, that's another um, time in my life where, where I was f- so scared to move to the East coast. Cause I was so afraid of snow. I was I was like, I can't do this. I, I'm a California girl. I was raised, born and raised in LA. And then I went to Berkeley. And I remember thinking, I, I don't know if I could do it. And and my partner, um, who I'm married to now at the time, um, was like, you have to go to, to the Wellesley, Wellesley College. Wellesley College is like the mecca of, you know, feminist, you know, reach. And I'm like, okay, if you say that, and if you say it that way, I guess I'm, I'm going. And here I am. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. No, it's so funny that you mentioned that because I know that I know that you were based in Boston. Didn't know if you did your PhD over in Boston, but that's that's amazing that you you work at an amazing institution, you studied at an amazing institution. And I think what's really inspiring about your journey is that you said even with the great mentors that you had along your journey, you also learned about leaning into the areas that seemed like they might be a bit risky, but it was where no one was yet exploring and not to like, not to be afraid of that. What has inspired you or what has led you to developing your passion for helping minority females of color? Well, as a Thai American myself and a first generation college goer in the US, um, I know what it's like to um, be the only one in the room that looks like me and has the background that I have where I didn't have the social capital of somebody guiding me. Okay, this is how you write applications to college and this is this is how you study for a test. And, and so I feel like coming from that background, uh, the girls of color in these workshops and in my research in general often gravitate towards me and my experiences anyway. So it's a, it's a natural fit. That's amazing. I feel like we definitely have that in common as well. Having the feeling of sometimes we feel like we're alone in that room that we step into, but really finding your tribe, finding your people is all the more rewarding, especially when you do find them, because we've all come from similar experiences and it all transpires into the work that we're doing. So that's incredible. Absolutely. So what advice would you give to young girls uh, who are thinking about becoming scientists and are trying to dip their toe into the field, but they're not quite sure about it. I would say, don't be the one to reject yourself. 
you know, there's a lot of rejection that's going to happen in life. And that's part of, of being a human being and trying new things and growing. But a lot of times I feel that when somebody says, oh, that person, I, I would never be qualified for that job, or I would never win that prize, or that person won't look at me twice because I'm not as good as other people. You're rejecting yourself already. And so, so put yourself out there. Don't be the one to reject yourself because you're already going to have um, all these other people that aren't ready for you. Like I, I like to say, not yet. Society might not be ready for what you have to offer at the moment. And it just means that you have more time to percolate. You have more time to kind of just incubate it and repackage it to, so that people can understand it better. But, you know, just trust in that instinct that you have that thing that you, that maybe people are looking, you know, looking at you funny about, but look beyond that face and, and remember that, that just trust in, in that. Um, I know it might sound, it might feel very nerve wracking and anxiety filled, but on the flip side of that same emotion is excitement and the thrill of the, what is going to happen. And that's the, the joys of life, you know, ups and downs. And <laughs> I love that. I love that. Lisa. I needed that pep talk. <laughs> yeah. So thank you for that. <laughs> no, we all got to give each other a little bit of a pep talk every now and then. And that leads me to my, my last question for you. And you probably saw this coming as well. What is your definition of inner wealth? Mm. Finding meaning in, in the things, in the everyday things that you encounter, um, finding joy in those, those little moments that add up to, to something that's priceless. It could be that nod that you got from that mentor that is very, very withholding of their affection. It could be getting past that, that scary place, that box that you put yourself in and opening up a, a little slur and then seeing the light come through and not shutting it right back down, you know, and those little steps, those little moments, because, you know, you have to start somewhere, one foot in front of the other. I think if, when people realize that they there's there's a lot of choices, there are things that that are going to be a really difficult climb if you make certain choices, but there are other choices that you might not even realize will make you even happier than the thing that you you close the door on. Um, so when you know there's that there's that saying you know when one door closes the window opens you know and just keep keep up keep looking for that window. <laughs> Because the sun is gonna is gonna come out come out again. I love that. <laughs> that is beautiful, Linda. Well, that being said, thank you so much for an insightful and incredibly enlightening conversation. And we're definitely gonna have to do it again soon. Yay! <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> That's it for this week's episode of Inner Wealth. I hope you enjoyed our conversation and that you'll join us next week as we continue to explore all the ways success is being redefined in our ever-changing world. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on your favorite podcast app. And follow us on Instagram at Forbes Ignite for more thought-provoking content and opportunities to engage with us. I'm your host, Nicole Kakal. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>